You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data sharing ecosystems. Open banking, in its most pure form, is about the secure exchange of financial data based on open standards with consent. But data exchange is just one piece of the puzzle. To really make open banking sing, you need three major building blocks data exchange, payments, and digital ID. While there are many countries working on all three of these pieces, the initiatives driving them are often siloed and disjointed. Moreover, very few countries have started to bring these building blocks together into a cohesive whole. In fact, there is really only one place that has already built all these pieces, and more, all fully integrated at population scale. India. Thanks to a Herculean effort over the last two decades, India now has widely adopted digital ID, an open-loop payment rail based on QR codes, consent-driven data sharing across multiple economic verticals, as well as digital signature, verifiable credentials, and document storage. All built, all working, all public. Together, these systems provide the largest, most powerful set of open APIs in the world, known collectively as the India Stack. To make this a little more real, you can open a bank account in seconds with a fingerprint, even if you can't read or don't have a home, never mind a smartphone. With that account in hand, not only can you now participate in the digital economy, you can get free education, free healthcare, welfare payments, access to public transportation, and a host of other social benefits. And the list keeps on growing, all without a single scrap of paper. That's because India approached their digital transformation like they were building a road network or a sanitation system as public infrastructure. And throughout, they maintained a laser focus on the public good. One of the key minds behind this system is our final guest of the season. Dr. Pramod Varma is the chief architect of Aadhaar, India's digital identity program that has successfully covered more than 1.3 billion people. He is also the chief architect for various layers of what has come to be known as the India Stack, layers such as eSign, Digital Locker, and the Unified Payment Interface, or UPI all of which are now working at population scale throughout India. 
He also played an integral role in architecting India's digital health infrastructure, or ABDM, vaccination and immunization systems, or COWIN and DVOC, and the Unified Health Interface, or UHI. He is currently the CTO of XSTEP Foundation, a not-for-profit creating learner-centric digital public goods that power India's largest digital learning platform called Diksha, used to provide learning opportunities to 200 million children and 10 million teachers throughout the country and beyond. He is an advisor to the Unique Identification Authority of India, or UIDAI, the National Payment Corporation, or NPCI, the Goods and Services Tax Network, the National Health Authority, and the Securities and Exchange Board of India, providing guidance to the many digital public infrastructure initiatives throughout the country and many others across the globe. Pramod, thank you for joining us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I have been long waiting to make this happen. India's approach to becoming a digital nation has been uniquely successful. Let's take our listeners back to the beginning. How did it all begin? Excellent question. India had a very different economic setup. Pre-1992, much of the systems were all run by government, heavily socialistic in nature, hospitals, healthcare, banking, telecom, everything run by government. Didn't work out really well for us as the world was progressing, especially in the PC era in the 80s and subsequently computing internet and so on. So I think appropriately, India's then the prime minister and the finance minister, they had to make hard decision, especially during the crisis, 1992 India's economic crisis, to come out of it and completely opened up the economy. But good decisions were made. That really was the transition of India's economy. India's gained its independence from the colonization in 1947, so we were less than 50 years into our journey in 90s. So when this opened up, the best part was that it was along the lines of when the internet kicked in. India became the IT back office of the world through the offshoring and everything else that happened. India opened up the financial institutions, licensed many private banks, and of course, supported business, and then pushed for first mobile revolution. The mobile revolution where the Nokias of the world came in, we had a 2G network. So in the first decade of 2000 to 2010, India witnessed economic growth, innovation, IT growth, banking growth, markets starting to do well, and of course, in 2007-2008 timeframe, iPhone, Android coming in. The beginning of 2009, the government decides that we need to provide digital identity to a billion people to drive financial inclusion. It was purely set up as a developmental construct. And the developmental construct of identity is very important for subsequent conversation. So the idea was that everyone should have an identity. 
and everyone should be included. Access to banking and access to savings, access to financial products is an important enabler as India grows into the second decade post-2010. So India was looking to reform its banking sector and they recognized that digital identity was foundational in reforming the banking sector. Is that right? Indeed, absolutely. Because a lack of identity directly correlated to opening a bank account. Because the opening a bank account post 9-11 was much stricter. So what's called KYC norms, know your customer norms, were quite tight. And this is even more reflective of the fact that many women in the society did not have a proof of address or proof in their names. A lot of them are in their husband's or in a man's name. So this created significant gender disparity. There's one more thing. The other part was that India continued through the 90s and particularly in the 2000s, first, first decade, to increase its spend on social welfare. So the social welfare money, all kinds of benefits, fertilizer subsidy, cooking gas subsidy, pregnant women, subsidy for them to look after during the pregnancy, pensions and scholarships and many of this were actually adding up to about roughly then 2.5 percentage of our GDP or roughly about 18 percentage of budget, which is about 50 billion then. So imagine government spend that kind of money to provide welfare to people who they cannot identify and who don't have a bank account. So it was pretty obvious what's going to happen then. Much of that money would be diverted by middlemen because there's no direct way to give it to people. Manmohan Singh, India's prime minister at the time, is aiming to reform the banking sector, realizes that digital ID is key, and calls up Nandan Nilakani, the founder of Infosys. And Nandan calls you. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, I called on him. But nevertheless, this was a surprise news for a lot of us who were looking at various efforts going on in the country in 2009. On a beautiful Bangalore morning, we read that Dr. Manmohan Singh is bringing Nandan Nilakani as the chairman at the level of a cabinet minister rank to drive the digital identity project. We were very inspired, myself and a few other people, the four or five of us, who literally calls on him, join behind him. And I joined him in the team as early, even before the Identity Authority was born. And as part of the technology team, I acted as the chief architect of the entire Aadhaar project. Today, far and away, the world's largest digital ID system. What made you so certain that joining that team and driving that architecture was the right thing to do? It's an interesting question. Definitely a couple of things. One, Nandan had already authored a book called Imagining India. Imagining India actually talked about the power of identity and how we can unlock 
access to products, services, and so on in the country for a billion people. I had read the book and I had read about that. So I correlated very clearly saying, oh, this is very interesting. He had talked about it before. And if it's one person who is going to pull this off, he's going to be him. Frankly speaking, I wasn't sure. Even he wasn't sure, I think, whether the project is going to succeed. But nevertheless, I think the idea, the conviction, the reason why we are doing it was so clear and so compelling that it made no sense not to join. So literally in a few days, I quit my global CTO role in a private firm, which I was quite comfortable with. And I just volunteered and say, this is a mission that we all must absolutely try to do. And we believe we can do it. We believe we must do it. Adhar was launched in 2009. How long was it before it started to see adoption? And what does that adoption look like today? Excellent. 2009, to be precise, July is when officially the system was born and the authority was born subsequently. Then there were few very large, very senior leadership committees, one on the biometrics and one on the demographic data. And that was very, very key. Those committees decided some very important decisions in terms of what will we capture in the system and why do we do what we do. And that was all part of the initial setup. So we started all the paperwork, all the main decision-making in terms of design decision-making were done by end of December. And we built the software literally through the first two quarters. And by July 2010, we were ready to go on the ground. We ended up launching 2010, September 29th. And that's when we launched at Har. Imagine we had 1.3 billion people to cover. We started with one enrollment, 10 enrollments and so on. It took 260, 270 days to get to the first 1 million other numbers. By then, we were doing a 1 million every day. That was his commitment to Prime Minister. This is very interesting. He said, we have a five-year window with the politicians because that's when the election cycles are in India. First year is preparation because we have to get ready and launch it. So we really have three and a half, four years to get to a critical mass. Nandan also said, if you don't get to the critical mass, very high chances the next government cancels us. Nandan had promised the Prime Minister publicly that he will do 600 million others in four years. What is interesting for us is that this unusually large target meant all our non-muscles and non-practices and processes just went out of the window. And all our egos had to go out of the window. <laughs> and we had to all sit together and really work like a team and think out of the box to figure out how the hell are we going to get 600 million enrollments and other in four years. The brilliance of this plan was that we backward calculated a million, million and a half a day. And literally in 2014, March, when Nandan exited as a cabinet minister, the next big election, we had at least 600 million. We actually crossed 600 million in March 2014. And today we have 1.4 
billion people covered. Almost 99 plus population covered. A lot of us measure the usage of it. How many people are using it? How many are being used every day? And today I can proudly say Aadhaar is used about 80 to 90 million times every day. At least half a billion people use it once in a month. So it is just amazing. As the internet grew up, India grew with it. Starting in the 90s and extending into the new millennium, India quickly became, in Pramod's words, the back office of the world. Call centers, offshore development, shops, infrastructure support, high-end consulting, all roads IT led to India. Their socially-minded government chose to reinvest much of their newfound wealth back into the country, specifically for the unbanked. A need for more inclusive banking ultimately led to a need for digital ID. Enter Indian IT legend Nandan Nilakani, brought in by the PM to solve the problem of supporting digital IDs for over a billion people. And Adhar was born. Today, Adhar has become far and away the most widely adopted high-volume digital ID scheme in the entire world, acting as a foundation for everything that followed. What followed was Digital India. That's where Pramod and I go next. Fast forward to 2014, and Narendra Modi becomes Prime Minister. Then, in 2015, he introduced the Digital India campaign. What was Digital India? This transition was much talked about. Prime Minister Modi was Chief Minister of his state before that, and he was always huge fan of digital as a means to reach the last mile. I think he really realized for a large population, unless we leverage digital, we will never get everyone to have access to information, access to products, access to services, and access to opportunity in general. When he came as a prime minister, there was significant confusion regarding whether Aadha project would continue or not and so on. But nevertheless, he embraced it fully. He amplified it brilliantly, brought in legislative backing to it. Aadhaar itself was cemented and then, of course, subsequently used quite heavily for various programs, which I will talk about later. He did not stop at only that. During the first 100 days when he came in, he was reimagining the possibility of digital beyond the telecom infrastructure and internet infrastructure itself, physical infrastructure for communication and telecom, broadband and so on. He even imagined beyond. He said digital for health and digital for agriculture, digital for education and digital for financial inclusion and so on. Digital India. So he started pushing the leadership in saying, we must come up with a grand agenda 
in terms of pushing for digital as a means to formalize a billion people and give them opportunity to participate in the economy that is growing continuously and then he carved out this digital india program that covered digital connectivity digital solutioning broadband connectivity and various other infrastructure elements he believing a combination of entrepreneurial energy and digital is what is eventually going to solve much of our inclusion and formalization problem and not by everything done by government by itself very very refreshing for a lot of us and that's a time we were starting to reimagine aha here is an opportunity for a lot of us to imagine what's beyond identity and that set up for the next set of what we call the building blocks that subsequently fell in place under the digital india brand after adhar in response to digital india you and your team build two more pieces of the puzzle e-sign and digilocker can you describe what each of those are and what they do excellent very interestingly the ceo of aadhar who was under nandan nilkani is dr ram sevak sharma he is a brilliant engineer turned bureaucrat he also exited in 2014 from the authority and he became secretary of ministry of it he also was very supportive of the idea that we shouldn't stop and we should continue to reimagine other possibilities india had enacted a law called it act as early as 2003 making digital signature legal but even then in 2014 we had barely 1 to 2 percentage of the people using digital signature one day he called me up and said pramod why do we have 600 million or nearly 700 million aadhar holders who can authenticate anytime anywhere 700 million people can do that but why do we have only a million people who are doing digital signature even though legally we have all legislative backing for digital signature what can we do that was a birth of e sign that definitely a problem worth solving not only because signature was not being used the wet signature lack of digital signature meant lot of paperwork meant lot of cost for the banking and capital market and everybody else for employers for employees everybody who is doing paperwork it's a lot of cost and when the cost is high most of the poor people can't join the system because the cost itself is prohibitive for them to join so it was definitely very attractive for me to say this is a problem worth solving what does e sign do e sign allows any other holder any digital identity holder to digitally sign any contract which is accepted as a legal contract under the it act so this actually meant that a bank now onboarding a customer could say fill up this form on a mobile phone or on a, on a website and simply do a e sign to accept the terms and conditions and that is fully legally valid completely avoiding paperwork collecting and transporting and storing the paperwork and everything else in between so suddenly 
between e-sign and identity and digital signature, a bank could onboard a customer. Instead of spending roughly about $20, suddenly they were spending 20 cents. So this is a dramatic reduction of cost in the business system. And DigiLocker is even more interesting. Every time an Indian goes and tries applying for a product or a service or a job, you end up doing four things. Verify your identity, say who you are, fill up a form, provide supporting documents. So there are four very critical things that we had to unblock. Identity, digital signature, which was e-sign, payment, which we'll talk about later. But fourth thing was providing supporting documents. In 2015, we launched DigiLocker. It's a cloud-based wallet for creating verifiable certificates and documents and credentials. Today, verifiable credentials are a big topic around the world. But then we were quite ahead in saying all our academic certificates, job certificates, skill certificates, income certificates, income tax statements and bank statements will all go digitally verifiable and will be available in your wallet. Whether it's a cloud-based wallet or today a smartphone-based wallet, it will be available so that a service provider or a product provider like a bank or a mutual fund or a lender can now collect these documents digitally and verify this authenticity of this document digitally without any physical paperwork whatsoever. And that was DigiLocker. So DigiLocker provided credential wallets for all kinds of documents and certificates in a digital fashion. eSign supported digital signature. Aadhaar gave the identity. And then subsequently we solved payment. Let's go there. Once Aadhaar, eSign, and DigiLocker were in place, you began to build the Unified Payments Interface, or UPI, which has now become the most successful public payments infrastructure in the world. What is UPI and how did it come to be? We were doing internet banking, smartphone-based mobile banking. So we were setting ourselves up right. India also parallelly, National Payment Corporation of India, NPCI, had launched something called Immediate Payment Service called IMPS in India. IMPS was just push payment. That means I, as a bank account holder, could push money to your bank account, somewhat like a Zelle in the US and so on from Bank of America, right? So you could log into the internet banking or a mobile banking and send money to another account instantly. And that was launched in 2010. And that was quite successful by 2014. So we realized, here is our chance to upgrade the payment system, to do an instant payment system, truly called Unified for a reason, that allows P2P, P2M, B2B, and G2P, government to person. India didn't want to create siloed, disconnected, independent system, one for P2P, one for some wallet, one for tax payments, one for utility payments, and one for card payments, and so on. So the U part of UPI is a very key aspect of it. UPI was designed in 2014 as a unified protocol. First thing we did was to think about what will be the language of exchange of money. 
from any source to any source doesn't have to be bank account any currency between any two parties between any two devices for any purpose as an architect of that i was thinking very generalized if instant message can be sent or an email can be sent with a click of a button from any email service to any email service why are we not able to send money that way so npci team and some of us worked on writing the protocol first what's a protocol protocol is a language or a specification for a variety of network participants who adopt so that they can do instant money transfer between them upi created the protocol first and then created the open network called upi network when we did upi not only we did any to any for any purpose as i said we also said what if we unbundle the payment experience from the banks and allow fintechs also to play and let the money remain in the bank because that's a very protected highly well regulated system and is highly trusted by the people so the money remains in the bank but the experience comes in a new age innovators who can write smarter better apps and compete in the market two things proved to be very powerful in upi one the network thinking that means parties will join the upi network including fintechs and the banks and merchant acquisition endpoints and many such parties they will all speak one language called upi protocol so that it is secure trusted guaranteed and reliable and second bet we made is a will unbundled experience that also proved to be extremely important for that scale of becoming the largest in the world today running 12 billion transactions a month in 6 years or 7 years right so because of that we had many many existing companies and new fintechs who were join upi was probably the first time we truly leverage the private sector that proved to be again a brilliant strategy for us and we launched in 2015 as a pilot and 2016 as in production and 2016 to 2023 we grew from no transaction to 12 billion transactions a month when building upi what did you learn from earlier global payments initiatives like say alipay and wechat in china what made upi different two things we had to do one we had to somewhat future proof it that is why i said any device to any device any authentication any stored value any currency all these were very key decisions because we realized in the future we have new form factors new authentication maybe a face based authentication mechanisms and new cross border payments and all that thing will come so we had to create that that is one and second was to analyze the global systems like alipay and qr code so what we learned from china is china had shown us how natural a qr code based payments can drive without any card any post point of sale machines and so on extreme simplicity of a smartphone we also learned that china had allowed duopoly which i and alipay and they did not interoperate between them and subsequently they had to force that interoperability later but it was not an interoperable underpinning rail 
So we learn the good stuff like QR codes, how to leverage that, how to leverage the private ecosystem. But we ensure the underlying digital rails that move the money and the protocol remained open so that it's not one company or duopoly or a monopoly and it's not a closed wallet. It's an open loop payment. Any fintech and any bank. That's why we have nearly about 100 apps, 350 banks, all part of the network today. Digital identity, e-signatures, secure credentials, and real-time payments were already in place. Only then did India move on to open banking. Who was Sahamati, and what role did they play? So by 2016, when UPI was launched, Nandan Nilakani continued to play behind the scene as a thought leader. And he did a seminal talk called Data Democracy in 2016. In that talk, he brought out the idea that Indians will be data rich before they are economically rich. And hence, India must find a way to convert their data as an asset for them and a soil for them to build their life on rather than data becoming an oil we extracted. He spoke of that idea that everyone must own our own data. Our digital footprints will become the asset on top of which I can prove that I am a good employee, good taxpayer. Everything will come through the verifiable transaction trails that I generate. And if that data gets locked in into a few platforms, it's a shame. So that talk was very seminal for us to reimagine the next possibility that beyond the four things you talked about, identity, signature, credentialing, and payment, we spoke about how do we make sure that we create a digital infrastructure that allow the individuals and SMEs to own their own digital footprints. We need an infrastructure for data ownership and consented sharing infrastructure We also need to make sure that data comes out in digitally signed and machine-readable data. That means a verifiable proof of the trail is very key. And that's what the journey for open finance for us or open banking for us. And that created what we call Deeper Data Empowerment and Protection Architecture, DEPA. So this entire architecture, Deeper Architecture, was fully decentralized and peer-to-peer with the consent of me, me being the owner of the data. But we had to obviously legitimize this in the system. So financial regulators under our central bank regulator, RBI, and SEBI, which is a capital market regulator, and insurance regulator, IRDA, and our social production regulator, Provident Front Regulator, PFRDA, These four financial regulators came together under the leadership of our central bank and they were very keen to say customers should own their financial data, which is very interesting. They came from a policy perspective. They didn't come from a tech perspective. At the same time, we were thinking, what is architecture for doing this consented data ownership and sharing? 
but without centralization and without any honey pot being created the mumbai financial regulator and the bangalore came together and said here is a technology architecture and you will put together a policy and a legislative architecture for unlocking financial data and giving back to the people and that became the first network called account aggregator network which is our open finance network which is powered by a decentralized peer to peer secure protocol but it's an open network one of the problem with open networks is that you can't build the highway and not have a rule but who will come up with the rule right in an open network so we needed what's called a network facilitator so we needed some sort of an entity think of visa is a network facilitator but except that visa is a for profit entity in india this was a public good so we had to create a not for profit entity that would act on behalf of the network participants to create a good behaving trusted reliable network including discussions on grievance handling discussions on sls discussions on pricing who will conduct and facilitate these kind of conversations as a collective so this not for profit entity called sahamati is the not for profit entity that is acting as the open finance network facilitator purely a facilitator who is facilitating the good conversations about reliability security pricing any other grievance handling and governance of the overall network so that the network participants can collectively come together and say tell the regulators that this network is running well and citizens can actually trust the fact that this network is actually running well whereas europe took a top down approach to open banking starting with the payments and account interfaces india took more of a bottom up approach to get there starting with these foundational pieces like identity is that right that's right india took a very bottom up approach but i would say i think this was organic for india first give everyone a bank account and the prime minister modi pushed that through a program called jandhan and jandhan program gave additional 495 million accounts and the brilliant part of that is roughly about 60% of that accounts are all women so today number of bank accounts is on parity we close the gender parity gender gap access to banking and so on but when we did that it was naturally obvious to us that oh just identity won't solve the issue we need to solve paperwork paperwork meant digital signature and credentialing so we had to immediately solve that and payment was anyway coming along as i was telling you instant push payment existed we just had to upgrade and unify to create a more market driven open network for payment that was also played out perfectly because 2014 is when 3g rollout was in full swing and by 2016 when upi launched 4g was coming in and smartphones were starting to get pervasive i think it's somewhat serendipity with adhar india had solved the problem of digital id at scale Many said it couldn't be done, but they did it, and they weren't done yet. With eSign, they added digital signatures. With DigiLocker, they introduced verifiable credentials and secure documents. 
Then, with UPI, they solved payments. The Unified Payments Interface, or UPI, created a public, real-time payment rail that anyone could use to send money from anywhere to anywhere using just a QR code at zero cost. Those who were excluded from the digital economy, whether due to poverty or gender, were now included. Today, UPI processes over 12 billion transactions a month and rising. But in parallel, far from being displaced, credit card usage is on the rise as well. Because financial inclusion is good for everyone. Finally, only once the other pieces were in place did India introduce open banking proper. The ability to exchange data based on consent, ensuring that all the pieces worked together. Today, as Pramod explains, they are extending this infrastructure to support their entire economy. The work you're doing today aims to bring this public infrastructure to other verticals like healthcare, telecom, mobility, and notably e-commerce. Can you elaborate on some of these initiatives? One of the things we did with foundational building blocks, we're starting to now think about what are the similar building blocks that can drive innovation, drive innovation and inclusion in specific verticals. Around 2016, we had an effort called Health Stack, which became our digital health infrastructure. Currently, it's called ABDM, Aishman Bharat Digital Mission. ABDM is our digital blueprint for our health infrastructure, which took care of affordability of care, access to care, continuity of care, observability of care. And some of these key pieces were actually starting to fall in terms of health registries, facility and professional registries, unified health interface, which was open access to healthcare services like lab, ambulance, doctor, in an open network way. Anywhere you can find a doctor on the network rather than on a platform. And these are all application programming interfaces that meant private sector innovators can actually embed these APIs into their applications and provide various types of solutions in healthcare. Then financial was coming along well because financial folks are generally ahead of the curve. Financial moved from beyond the banking and capital market access to lending. So lending was a big deal for India because access to capital is quite limited for small medium businesses. And then we started doing education under Extep Foundation. That's where I am CTO. Extep Foundation focused on primary school education and built up Diksha education and skilling infrastructure. This is even more relevant for India because 70% of Indians are below 35 years old. We are a very young country. And being young means reskilling, upskilling. The youth is a continuous process for us to be able to do as we navigate into AI era. We have to reskill constantly. And the fourth one was agriculture, where we are actually developing infrastructure elements that allow verifiable credentials for farmers, the land parcels they have, 
and so on, making it available to them and so that they can access to lending or capital or access to information, farmers to get access to market for a best price and so on. The last one is e-commerce, even more interesting, where an effort called ONDC, Open Network for Digital Commerce, ONDC is a not-for-profit institution along the same lines as Sahamati or NPCI. National Payment Corporation of India, NPCI did payment, Sahamati did data, ONDC did commerce transactions. So think of a similar playbook. ONDC is using something called Beckon Protocol, which is an open source global protocol, to drive peer-to-peer commerce. The difficulty with peer-to-peer commerce is that discoverability and contracting nature of traditional systems. That's where you go to a platform or you do a bilateral contract and do back-to-back shipping arrangements with somebody, right? We are creating an open network and facilitating that open network and providing all the support to create a dynamic digital contract between the parties, discover a shop nearby and order something and get it shipped all through digital network. Very interesting possibilities. We launched ONDC last year. We also launched a parallel exercise for urban mobility. So today when you order a cab, what do you do normally? You go to Uber or Lyft. And in India, it's another company called Ola. So you pick up their app. And if they show a taxi, then good, you book it. But you don't know if there is any other taxi outside their system. You don't know that today. And because of that, urban mobility is still very fragmented. So if you want an electric bike or if you want metro to book, you need different apps and different systems. So India is using the same architecture. India is opening up an integrated mobility network as well. And we launched that last year. We crossed about 15 million transactions just in Bangalore in the span of a year. Very interesting part of this is that this is world's first peer-to-peer network. That means your smartphone is connected to a driver's smartphone in a peer-to-peer way and contracted dynamically and price discovered and driver discovered dynamically and the driver shows up. So it's very interesting that it's quite similar to how you used to hail taxis on the roadside, peer-to-peer, but in a digital way without a platform in the middle. Just to recap, health, education skilling, finance, agriculture, and of course, the commerce and mobility. You described how public open mobility can disrupt private platforms. Does that mean things like ONDC will come for Amazon? And what's next? Open search? Open social? Let's go back to UPI once. This is peculiar to India. India had 22 million credit cards. We have a billion adults, so think about it. So credit card penetration is very low. Card penetration is low because point-of-sale systems are low, only 5 million point-of-sale systems. When UPI was launched, someone asked the same question here. What you're asking today? Is UPI coming for Visa and MasterCard? And interestingly, our answer was that, no, it might feel like we are disrupting Visa or MasterCard. But funny thing is that Visa and MasterCard is doing barely any volume, 2% of the country. We have a large pie. Now come back to our NDC question. In New Delhi, which is our capital, 
and we have a metro delhi metro alone does more transactions every day than the whole of uber combined in india just to repeat just one city metro alone does more transactions than uber so what it really showing for a country like india these platforms are not able to penetrate beyond 2 3 percentage and amazon has penetrated 8 7 to 8 percentage 92 percentage of retail transactions happen outside amazon today 92 So what we are really interested is to bring formalization of this economy and bring a large section of the young Indian population to transact digitally to join that system but we believe that cannot be done by one platform alone and if one platform alone does that we'll have a huge monopoly in our hand so either way we believe today we need an open network idea the idea of internet itself an idea that would bring amazon flipkart is another company mintra in india many of them exist today they can all come into the network and make their products and services available on the network and it's completely peer to peer the difference here is that no product provider or a service provider or a taxi provider would be monopolized by one platform and hence we would see a much more balanced commission structure interoperability as a weapon for competition is what we are trying and to expand the market so it's a very interesting argument we are making here not a replacement argument it's an expansion argument you've often talked about going from platform thinking to network thinking is that what you mean that's exactly what we mean internet is a network of platforms and we are able to exchange content and interoperate content because of the standards of content which is why we are able to watch video audio text any standardized content and exchange them over a protocol called http on the internet and we are now saying time has come for us to reimagine the internet to move from a content internet to a transaction internet and that transaction internet would allow many platforms to come together to behave like internet and allow interoperability between any platforms to any platform this also means each platform will be able to do one thing very well but collectively the network would do many things for example an uber wishes to join ondc who can offer taxi service but a metro platform can also join and offer metro ticketing or a bus ticketing or an electric bike startup company who is offering electric bike can also join as a platform now as a consumer now i can create an integrated system i can buy metro ticket for the main hall and actually take an electric bike for the last mile or things like that which today it's not possible at all to integrate things like this that's what we are imagining in your own words what is digital public infrastructure digital public infrastructure means that we are laying reusable and interoperable rails or roads 
on which private innovation can thrive. Infrastructure, the word infrastructure is key. Digital is, of course, digital. And public, because it's in the public interest. Solutions may not be. ONDC is in the public interest. Uber may not be. UPI is in the public interest. But Google Pay, who is on UPI, is a private good. So digital public infrastructure is a way of thinking that allows countries to lay reusable and interoperable underlying infrastructure on top of which a massive internet-like private innovation can thrive. And internet is a classic example of a digital public infrastructure, I would say, on top of which innovation was built. You've said that the core benefit of digital public infrastructure is that it enables high trust at low cost. Can you expand on that idea? I think if we really analyze again and again, you will see in countries like India or many of the developing countries, the simple economic viability and the cost structures are prohibitive for most of the businesses to go beyond the first top 10, 20% of the population. Because it's cost prohibitive for addressing tiny small scale lending. For example, $100 lending. Who wants to do? Much your cost of the bank of paperwork, verification, lending, collection is much more than the interest you can earn. Fundamentally, you will realize that unless the cost structures are dramatically reduced and trust is dramatically increased. For example, if I say I'm Pramod Varma, how does a bank know I'm Pramod? If I say I earn $50,000, how does a bank know I earn $50,000? Today, that lack of trust or the cost of that trust verification is all in paper form, background checks and verifications. By creating digital infrastructure, you can increase the trust dramatically and at the same time, cut down the cost significantly. The simple onboarding of a new customer into a mutual fund used to cost $20 in India. And if the commission is only 50 bips in a 0.5 percentage, why would the mutual fund distributor go after anyone who is small? Because my cost of onboarding you is much more than what you're going to earn me. But today in India, from $20, it went to 20 cents. If the system reduces the cost of innovation and cost of delivering a product and service, we can reach a lot more people. We created infrastructure that reduces the cost, increases the trust, using digital as a lever, but driving private innovation on top of it. And that drove the next 500 million people to join the digital economy for us. And now soon, hopefully, another 500 million towards a billion people. Your father often used to say, it's important to be positive and very focused on doing the right things. How has this idea influenced your approach to building India's digital public infrastructure? So a few of us individuals have come together with very clear and quite pure intent. Second, learn the mechanisms by which you collaborate 
and bring so many different ecosystem actors to align to a larger goal and larger vision and inspire them to navigate this journey second point and third extremely optimistic keeping extreme optimism and positive thinking in mind and fourth laser focus to do one thing really well but at scale and keep the next thing really well at scale and keep doing it i think these four things i would say has played out well for india you have said that the most important thing is to convince your society to believe in what's possible what do you mean by that india came out of a 300 year colonial ruling and that left us quite in bad <laughs> shape and we are rebuilding since 1947 with the large population continue to grow and we were never going to be the china way we could never be a pure capitalistic us way because of the large poverty factor that we had to deal with especially the early years of independence so i think a lot of us grew up to have less belief frankly that nothing is going to happen in this country is going to be very slow and painful if you are a smart guy you get out go to us or go to somewhere else and do your phd and settle down but i think post 92 india started seeing a different picture and especially in 2000 the early decade and then post 2000 second decade of 2000 you started seeing entrepreneurial energy flowing in economy growing opportunities arriving the society has started believing there is something in india but when it came to digital infrastructure i have often said aadhar created that impetus for us to believe because everyone almost every expert every almost every politician believed that aadhar is not going to work but i think when aadhar came out successfully and then subsequently upi did every such step what happened is that now today we can walk in to a government secretary's office or a regulator's office and propose an idea and they won't even blink they would say of course let's do it in the sense of the belief that india can pull off this completely ourselves and imagine we don't have to look up to other countries i think india has a belief that we can do it and we must do it and for our economy to grow to create an inclusive society we have no other way to achieve this so i think there is tremendous support across the country for us to be able to do this this belief is so fundamental in taking these moon shots and people rally behind us because of this belief we can starting to experiment we're starting to create new entrepreneurial opportunity and that's fantastic to see Pramod where can our guests find out more about you and the work you're doing much of the work we are doing are open source and they're all available by searching google and so on and you can find much of these resources i am available on linkedin and available on email for people to reach out and at center for dpi where i'm a co-chair pramod thank you for joining us it's been truly inspirational 
Yeah, thank you so much. On August 19th, 2023, ministers from the G20 responsible for their country's digital economies met in Bengaluru, India, to discuss digital public infrastructure. They defined DPI as follows. A set of shared digital systems that should be secure and interoperable and can be built on open standards and specifications to deliver and provide equitable access to public and or private services at societal scale, governed by applicable legal frameworks and enabling rules to drive development, inclusion, innovation, trust and competition while respecting human rights and fundamental freedoms. For the first time, a multilateral group of 19 countries and a continent recognized the importance of DPI. At the G20 session, under India's presidency, DPI was held up as fundamental to meeting the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, adopted by all member states in 2015. Specifically, those on poverty reduction, gender equality, economic growth, and climate action. DPI rests on three key pillars. Identity, payments, and data exchange. Precisely the three components of comprehensive open banking. But crucially, done from the ground up. In a way that can stem far beyond banking transforming the economy and society itself. India has proven that building the digital ecosystem of the future is not a fantasy. The technologies exist and can be deployed in an affordable way at societal scale. The benefits are many. Reducing inequality, improving health, enabling education and promoting inclusive, sustainable economic growth. Perhaps most importantly, it raises all boats. Governments benefit, businesses benefit, and individuals benefit. Just like open banking, DPI is a win-win-win. At the G20 session, the Indian hosts published a complimentary playbook and compendium to help their fellow members advance their own digital transformation. Much of their technology is open source, free to use. Their stated goal is to unlock and strengthen DPI implementations in over a hundred countries worldwide. Impossible? According to Pramod, the first step is to believe. With that, we come to the end of yet another season. To our listeners, old and new, thank you for your time. We hope that you've enjoyed the show as much as we've enjoyed making it, and we sincerely hope that you'll join us for the next season of Mr. Open Banking. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the 
podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode of Mr. Open Banking was made possible by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. To learn more, visit radium.com.